Hello goblins and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of my Haunted Life podcast with me, your host, Angela Hartshorn. How is everyone doing today? I hope wherever you are, you are staying very cool and comfortable. It's been insanely warm here, and we aren't even to August yet. really need to buy an air conditioner. We are still moving in and working fair, so I'm a bit exhausted and working on a cup of tea at the moment to keep working late into the night to get this out to you guys. I wanted to give a special shout out to friend of the show and Patreon subscriber Callan, who is having surgery today, which been a couple days since I recorded, but, um, just wanted to say everyone here at the podcast loves you so very much, and I hope you have a speedy recovery. So, you know, we can go ghost hunting again soon. Totally random sidebar for those that are into true crime. Uh, for those who aren't, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. If you haven't heard, Rodney Alcala died, the dating game killer. Apparently he died this weekend. Great news. If you aren't familiar, this piece of shit operated as a serial killer in California from 1977 to 1979. Two years. And uh, that's what we know of. We know of at least five victims but some people believe it's up closer to a hundred. The known known victims are Robin Samso, who was 12, Jill Barcombe, who was 18, Georgia Wixt, 27, Charlotte Lamb, who was 32, and Jill Parentu, who was 29, or uh, 21, sorry. He was one of those creeps with a camera types. He would go up to women, tell them he was a photographer, and ask them to model for him. He never liked it when they brought an escort. Always bring an escort. He would then attack them, beat them, rape, and then murder these women, usually by strangulation. During his killings, he appeared on the dating game and actually won. But the woman thought he was way too creepy and declined the date. Always listen to your gut, ladies. Oh my god. He had been actually convicted of raping an 8-year-old girl by this time, but apparently the producers at the dating game weren't into background checks. I get it was the 70s, but damn, you guys. In 2010, DNA discovered he had a few other victims. I'm not sure if that's part of the ones I mentioned, or if these are three new ones. I couldn't, I couldn't find their names. Um, but, uh, so, why am I telling you? about a serial killer during a podcast about hauntings. The big thing is to help get the word out. Like I said, this guy said 
he was a photographer and when he was arrested it was discovered that he had hundreds of photos in his possession that he took. Some of these photos are of the victims. Others are women in very similar circumstances. The Huntington Beach Police Department released some of these photos to help get them identified. Some of these women women have still not been identified. So if you know anyone who, that was in the area at the time, so in California in the later seven, 1970s, take a look at the photos. You never know, you might recognize someone. It could be the smallest thing. Or if a family member might recognize someone, let, let's just try to get the word out. Now that this monster is dead, let's not let his secrets die with him. So, back to, you know, the normal stuff. This week, I'm doing something a little different. I don't have a guest or an admin or anyone. It's just me telling you a story. Not gonna lie. I'm a bit intimidated, so be gentle with me. For those that have listened to the podcast for a bit, you might have gotten the idea that I love Ed and Lorraine Warren. Lorraine, in particular, she was the first woman I had ever saw in the paranormal field, and I just glommed onto that and followed her career into her death. I'm still very upset that I never got to meet her in person. I got very excited when the Conjuring movies started coming out and there was a resurgence of interest in their case. And then it became the Conjuring universe. I still haven't seen the Annabelle movies. Maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have watched them, but I honestly doubt it. I have a big problem with the fact that they made Annabelle a scary porcelain doll instead of the sweet, unassuming Raggedy Ann doll that she is. And then they got three movies out of her. So when the third Conjuring movie came out, I was really excited for a paranormal true crime flick. But I was not prepared for all the weird, made-up, cult backstories stuff. It, it I was very... I, was, I wasn't happy about it. Uh, I got my poor husband to watch it with me, and I've only gotten him to watch three horror movies in our 14 years together. And I basically complained and kept correcting the history the entire way through. I might not be the best one to watch horror movies with. Anyways. Uh, also... By the way, spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, perhaps watch it first and come back to this episode. But if you have seen the movie or just don't care, keep listening. So today, I am going to tell you the real life story behind the Devil Made Me Do It court case. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you.
1980, the Glatzel family lived in Brookfield, Connecticut, a very lovely, affluent area, very Catholic area. It's described as stereotypical New England type of town. And from all accounts, the family was just one big, happy family for the most part. The family consisted of mother and father, Carl and Judy, older sister, Debbie, and brothers, Carl Jr., Alan, and the youngest, David. Debbie didn't live in the house. She was actually making plans to move into a new place with her boyfriend, Arnie, Cheyenne Johnson. She actually referred to him as Cheyenne, who was 19. Her seven-year-old son, Jason, from a previous marriage. Actually, he he's about six now. His birthday is actually mentioned later, but... When everything happens, he's about seven. Arnie's mom, Mary Johnson, who was going through colon cancer, and Arnie's two little sisters, Leah and Megan, and Mary's niece, Jennifer, who was basically like a third daughter. Debbie worked as a dog groomer, and Arnie was a tree doctor. So, basically a landscaper that really focused on trees. Judy and Carl were a little worried about Debbie and Arnie's financial situation, even giving Debbie extra money, but nothing really out of the ordinary, anything a worried family would do. But they were really only worried about money, not the young couple or his family or anything like that. They had no idea what they were in for. Arnie and Debbie and Arnie's family found a large home with an attached apartment that could accommodate the large family. And they started moving in early July 1980. Weird things started happening almost immediately. Literally, when they were moving in. I found two versions of David's first experience. One quoted the mother, Judy, as witnessing the event, but most say David was on his own and retells the story. Judy and Debbie were hanging curtains in a room where there was some leftover stuff from previous renters, including a waterbed. When David came in, she saw her son suddenly fall on the bed. According to the book The Devil in Connecticut, which I quote a lot, David felt two hands push him onto the waterbed and then witnessed an old man before him. He described him as having gray hair, no white, and a small mustache white. There was a mole by his right eye and wearing a red plaid shirt. The sleeve on the left side was all torn and part and ragged. His pants were ripped too. He had on old blue jeans washed out like. There was a hole in the left knee of the pants. 
This old man was pointing a finger at him, warning him, beware. The same day, the other brothers were moving something into the same room and the door shut by itself behind them. When the young boys tried to leave, the door wouldn't open. It was like the door was locked, but the handle was like locked in place. It wouldn't turn. It wasn't working at all. They yelled and screamed and beat on the door, but no one heard them. It's an empty, old Victorian house. You, you would think you could hear these little boys screaming for their lives. Suddenly, the handle worked, and the boys went running out. Later that evening, when the family had gone to bed, David told his story to his brother, Alan, and Alan told David his. I'm picturing these two little boys confiding to each other in the darkness. It seems like the beginning of any Stephen King novel, really. Alan convinced David to tell the rest of the family his story. So at breakfast the next day, the boys mustered their courage and told the family. At first, they weren't really believed and shrugged off completely, but the boys were adamant. During this, the family discovered a new ability that David had. He could see inside the house no matter where he was. I couldn't tell if he was like seeing through someone else's eyes, but when he closed his eyes, he could see clearly into the house like he was actually there. And then he really spooked the family because he described what George, Debbie, and Arnie's sheepdog had done all night. There had been some miscommunication with the landlord and Debbie and Arnie couldn't move into the attached apartment because the landlord's niece was still living there. So that night they decided to sleep elsewhere other than, you know, sleeping on the floor or something. But they left their sheepdog, George, in the house. David could describe Poor George, freaking out in the house, running up and down the stairs, being tormented by spirits. When Arnie and Debbie went back over to the house in the morning, they found poor George, one of his paws bleeding. At first they thought he was dead, but he was just immensely exhausted. He was barely breathing, having very labored breathing in the living room. They discussed discovered that the poor dog had been digging and clawing at the basement door. They don't know if there was something behind it he wanted or just another way to get out of the house. When the landlord's niece came to the house to get some of her things, they were able to ask her about the strange occurrences in the house. Which... It kind of sounded like it was one of the reasons why she had, was moving out. But she said it was her grandfather and was harmless. Another woman, Karen, or in some places, Tammy, very confusing, uh, the owner 
of the waterbed had similar experiences. She claimed she had heard her name several times in the night, felt cold spots, heard footsteps in the attic, and oddly enough heard chickens, lots of chickens, and only at night, and she had gone around to all the neighbors to check if anybody had chickens, and no one did. Most terrifyingly, she had been touched and even had a spirit that she described as an old man crawl into bed with her and attempted to touch her inappropriately. Ugh. This was just weird enough for Debbie and Arnie. They were very frightened by the things that David was saying and decided not to move in the house with Arnie's mother and sisters. This caused a huge rift in the family. Debbie and Arnie went and stayed at the Glatzel family home until they figured out what to do next. Mary Johnson, Arnie's mom, refused to move out of the house mainly because she couldn't afford it and really didn't have another place to go. Um, Debbie and Arnie were actually sleeping in sleeping bags in the living room. They, were, they just had to get out. Things just kept getting weirder after that. David found a burn mark on his bed that went through the mattress and damaged the floor below. Some reports say it was his bed, others say it was a bed that was been left by previous owners. One time when hearing what David was describing, Debbie went to light a cigarette to calm her nerves. When she flipped her lighter, the flame came out like a blowtorch. The family also claimed that they had found carvings in the surrounding woods. David would describe the old man in the house as morphing into something else at night. Judy told People Magazine that her son saw a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hoofs. They started referring to this figure as the beast or master. David would describe this man crawling out of a well built into the foundation of the house and then float above the trees to come to the Glassell family home to get him. And he would describe in great detail this man and would freak out and go completely hysterical and beg for his family to protect him. He would describe the old man lurking outside the family's homes and peering into the windows at them. David would announce when the entity was outside and suddenly three loud knocks would come at the door. Three loud knocks, scratches, anything else by an entity that happens in threes is supposed to be demonic because it's supposed to be mocking the Holy Trinity and the death of Jesus. 
it is believed that Jesus died at 3 p.m. So the flip of that is that 3 a.m. is the devil or witching hour. And it is said that this is when the demonic makes itself known. On one of these occasions, Judy ran around the house splashing holy water and telling this evil entity that was outside her house that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost that it needed to leave. And she ran around splashing this holy water on the doors, the windows, anywhere that David told her it was near. And it seemed to work, and the spirit was not able to get in. For now, the family believed that the spirit decided to just hang out in the yard for a little bit, since there was a lawn chair that had been folded up, and now it was set up as though somebody was just sitting in it. Just imagine this terrifying demon being stopped in his plans for the day to torture this poor child, just chilling in the backyard instead. I, I just can't get that image out of my head. These visitations happened more than once. One of these times, David claimed that the spirit was coming to get him again. He could see him floating, could describe every landmark he was floating past the trees he was floating above. When the spirit arrived at the house, the three loud knocks happened again. Again, Judy went around the house with the holy water, but this time, the demon found a way in. On July 4th, the family was having a picnic with other family members. They were able to get out of the house it was a wonderful break from the oddities that everybody had been going through. It had started to rain, which David said the beast predicted it would, and the family went home. David didn't want to get out of the car to go into the house because he said that the beast had made its way into the attic. His far father, Carl, who thought all of this was still made up, made him come in. Everything was quiet for a bit. And then three knocks came at the door. Judy thought it was Debbie's friend that lived across the street and happened to help them move. But when Judy went to the door, there was no one there. She listened, but there was nothing but crickets outside. My thing is, if you've been having this issue, why would you open your door? Look look out the door. There, ha there has to be a window or something. I don't understand. But I digress. Then scratching started on the inside of the house, on one of the living room walls, and then on a different wall, and then banging and stomping started in the attic. Arnie decided he was going to go into the attic and see what it was. When he got up there, he didn't see anything. 
but he said that it was very cold and he could hear distant whispers. Like, he couldn't make out what they were saying and they sounded like they were far away, but he knew they were whispers. This was the beginning of their demonic infestation. So what is demonic infestation? How is it different from possession? There are stages to petronatural manifestations. According to Ed Warren, it starts with encroachment. Demonic encroachment, which to me just kind of sounds terrifying in and of itself. This is when a spirit is given access to a human either by voluntary means such as satanic rituals or involuntary like someone has been cursed. Next is demonic infestation. This is what we're talking about happening with the Gretzel family at the moment. This is the stereotypical haunted house type stuff. Footsteps, voices, apparitions, furniture and other items moving without help, well, without human seen help, I should say. Odors with no source. That sort of thing. The, the stereotypical haunting type of things. Rather than directly affecting people, infestations affect only property, objects, and sometimes even animals. It's about messing with your environment, basically. If this is taking, not taken care of, it can get even worse and become demonic oppression. Demonic oppression is where the demon is doing its very best to overwhelm the person so he can possess that person. It's literally breaking down their walls. This can be external, such as causing havoc in the environment, or internal, controlling emotions and fears, and, well, mental health. Activity steps up, just ramps up with physical attacks, sleep disturbances, including regular nightmares, frequent and severe illnesses, major depression or anxiety, severe financial or employment problems, and relationship troubles. While these things happen in the normal course of life, all of them happening all at once in rapid succession could be a sign of demonic presence. Or, you know, bad luck. But in this case, demonic presence. In a lot of cases, the demons are leading the person to either kill themselves or to kill someone around them. That's, that, that's the whole kind of point of this. Demonic oppression is a very popular phrase on ghost adventures for any GAC crew out there. You know what I mean? They always seem to find people in the beginnings of demonic oppression. Next is demonic obsession. 
Although this is sometimes outlined as part of the oppression stage, it kind of depends on which article is written by who. Sometimes it's a part of oppression, sometimes it's by itself. Just wanted to let you guys know that. But, as it is implied, at this stage, the afflicted person has a hard time functioning without just thinking of all the demonic activity preoccupying their lives. This is also when sleep really becomes impossible. And that really breaks down your physical and mental health. And this is where thoughts of suicide also start becoming very prevalent. Now, all three of these stages can be addressed by a competent deliverance minister. I really like that phrase. I think it sounds cool. It's a cool title. However, the last stage is only for the real true exorcist. And that would be the big one, what we're talking about today, demonic possession. According to one article I read, possession is not demons entering a person's body and taking over his or her soul. A person's free will is never removed, only severely compromised. In possession, a person is so physically, emotionally, and mentally, and spiritually broken down by what's, what they're going through that the other stages that the demonic spirits are able to occasionally seize control of the person's actions. Now, according to Ed Warren, there is a fifth stage. And that stage is death. This can be, like I said, suicide or murder. Carl, the dad, who was already having issues believing this was a thing, slept through the whole occurrence. In fact, him and Carl Jr., the oldest son, seemed to be immune to what was happening. Sort of. Uh, This caused a lot of tension among the family. As we find out later, Carl Jr. is actually affected a little bit more than anyone realized. The morning after, Judy asked David to tell her what was going on. He told her the demon wouldn't let him speak about him. But Judy persisted. She wanted to know what in the hell was going on with her son. She asked questions like, where is the beast? What does he look like? Why was he there? Apparently, the spirit had a thing for Mary Johnson, Arnie's mom, and liked watching her and the girls undress in the house. And like with Tammy, or Karen, they had been touched inappropriately. He came to their house after David because the beast wanted a soul. He thought 
David would be easy. He's the youngest. That was their target. Then David froze. He immediately started saying sorry to something that wasn't there. Judy watched it appear out of nowhere as though her son had just gotten slapped in the face. She saw his head jerk, saw the red handprint on his poor little face. She heard the sound and then watched it happen again to the other cheek. She screamed at the entity to stop. David begged her to stop talking to him because the demon was doing it out of anger at her trying to talk to him. Judy was so fearful, she froze and stopped talking. And the attack on David stopped. Later that night, the rest of the family, except Carl and Carl Jr., got to witness this spectral abuse. As they were falling asleep, the beast came to David in the house with the promise that they could leave the bedroom light on and used him to talk to the rest of the family. And I'm warning you now, it's not good stuff. But I'm going to read it to you anyways. This is your uh, trigger warning. Get on your knees when you addressed me, you contemptible slut. Remember, all of this is coming from the mouth of an 11-year-old boy. A boy that had no behavioral problems, who was described as sweet and loving, that had never talked back to his parents. According to the book, The Devil in Connecticut, the first time David spoke back to his father was when he refused to get out of the car after the 4th of July party. The changes in this poor kid over such a short amount of time must have been just so immensely jarring, not only for him, but for his family. But he's literally dealing with unseen forces. And everybody's constantly questioning him. Why wouldn't you question this? Uh, one of the things that Judy talks about a lot is she felt awful questioning and not fully believing her son because she couldn't see it. She couldn't see these forces. But then she watched his reactions and his attacks. And even though he described like a stereotypical devil, that was like the hard part for her was trying to figure to wrap her head around that being real. But it, this poor kid, no matter what is going on with him, something really bad is happening to this kid. So, Judy didn't know what to do. Her family's not helping her. Her older son is being a jerk. She has, you know, her daughter and her daughter's fiance. And that's about it. Like, she doesn't know what to do. Like I said, she's kind of struggling with accepting this as a real thing. So, like any good Catholic, she turned to her local church for help. She got prayer candles from the church, 
One was later thrown across the room and shattered against the wall with just red wax going everywhere. Uh, Considering the prayer candles didn't do much, a priest came in and did some sort of blessing of the home. It was written as a dedication of the house to God. This upset the demons even more, and they retaliated. David said that there was the old man's spirit who morphed into a demon. He had previously claimed that this demon had two helpers helping him, two smaller demons. He described it as scaly, light red in color. It wore no clothes. He had the torso of a male human, but the lower half had cloven hooves. It looked like he had more than five claws per hand, but David wasn't sure how many. He had short horns on his head. When he manifested in front of David, there was like this weird red light that was also like this backdrop. It's so cinematic. Poor David let out this horrible cry that woke up the rest of the family. David was hysterical with fear so much that he was shaking and still screaming and crying. So his mother, Arnie, and Debbie took him downstairs. Carl, the dad, wanted nothing to do with the situation. The other boys were put back to bed. And they were the ones also helped torturing him. After the prayer candle and the house blessing incident, David would say there were now 42 demons. When Judy started asking David what had happened, the physical attacks by the unseen force started again. All three witnesses, Judy, Debbie, and Arnie, were absolutely terrified. Poor David was kicked and punched over and over again. They watched him jerk and cry out and they would see the marks form on his body. Finally, the attack stopped and the beast spoke through David. Like, poor David was just sitting there. I think he had fallen asleep and suddenly his head comes up and you could see like his face squished, like somebody was squishing his cheeks in that came into the house. When asked, who are you? The answer would be, suck my cock. When asked, what is your name? The answer would be, none of your business. When asked, are you a ghost or a devil? The answer was, you'll find out. When asked, who sent you here? The answer was, your best friends. When Debbie asked, why don't you leave us in peace? The answer was, 42. David was raised Catholic. He, this is the, well, 1980. 
So, you know, they went to church all the time still. They were all about this. He knew that was the one thing you should never do. And he refused. He refused to give his soul to this terrifying demon that's been making his life hell. And after that, they started beating the shit out of him. This poor little kid. It was reported that David was hit or kicked or punched by one of these demons. And you could see, again, you could see it. You could see it form on his face or uh, the family could hear it. On one occasion, the family watched as David was nearly choked to death. Uh, David was not the only one that saw the beast. Debbie actually saw it on one occasion. They were all sitting around watching television during the day. It wasn't night. So there was like this false sense of calm. And she looked up. She just had this feeling to look up at the ceiling. And there was the beast on the ceiling staring down at her. And she became entrenched by the demon's black eyes and was so afraid she couldn't scream or it wouldn't let her scream. She really couldn't tell, but she was unable to even make a noise or look away or anything. David was the one that actually broke this trance. He went to his sister and forcibly moved her head, making her look look away. Almost nonchalantly, David said, I saw him looking at you, too. That's why I came and got you. What? (laughs) This poor kid is, like, not even phased by this anymore. And they were all controlled by the beasts. And they were referred to by their given number. They never said their names, only their numbers. It is believed that if you know a demon's name, you can control it and make it leave. David was able to describe each one in great and unique detail. If you guys get a chance to read the book, The Devil in Connecticut, his descriptions are so unique and so terrifying. Like he was saying, With one, you could tell it had a head wound like it had been shot in the head. And another one had a knife in its head and was all bloody. There was one that looked like it was cremated. And I am not doing justice to the descriptions. And again, there's 42. And he could keep these straight. Like, he was on it. He could describe each one perfectly. Because, you know, it was in front of him so he could tell you what he's looking at. These demons would parade around the house and they were they would act like they were going to beat him, pretend like pretend hit him. And then after everything, the demon decided that he wanted To just come out and say it, and say he wanted David's soul. The 
The Kratzel and Johnson family's ordeal was just getting worse and worse, and it was about to get even more awful. But at the same time, help was also on the way in the form of famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. This case was one of their most dangerous they had ever come across, but not even the famed Warrens could have predicted what would happen next. Next week, I'll delve into the Warrens and their involvement with the case. The case that just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Jesus repels you. Leave this child alone. Yes, never. You are not strong. You're weak. I'm the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hold the Thank you to everyone out there listening today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you liked this one. I was not prepared for all the information I found, so I hope it was worth the wait. Y'all are a bunch of just sexy, demonic beasts, let me tell you. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast for when the rest of the episodes come out, you get notified and you don't miss a single one. If you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. If you have a ghost story to share, don't forget to drop me a line at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Everything is My Haunted Life Podcast. I try to keep it simple. Don't forget that we also have a My Haunted Life Podcast Facebook page where we have a lot of fun. Kayla is just on those memes, let me tell you. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. It's not much. It's less than a coffee. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And after these episodes, I hope you can sleep. Pleasant dreams.